Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode two of the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Senkungu, the first interview episode. If you haven't heard what the show is about, check out episode one. But basically, this show will have long form interviews with the purpose of sharing wisdom from successful people of color so you can learn how you can achieve your goals by following in their footsteps. And their stories will give you the inspiration to power through the obstacles you'll face in general and as a person of color to get there. In this interview, I talked to Bryce Fisher. I've known Bryce for more than 20 years. He graduated from the Air Force Academy the year after I did. He played Division I football there and was actually Conference Defensive Player of the Year his senior year. Then he went on to play football in the NFL for nine years. He played alongside Hall of Famers like Orlando Pace, Marshall Falk, and Kurt Warner. He even played in Super Bowl Forty in 2006. After only two years of retirement, 78% of NFL players are either broke or struggling financially. Bryce is the exact opposite of this. He had a plan where he was going to get out of the NFL, get his MBA, and then go into business. And he, in fact, did that. He got his MBA at the University of Chicago, which is a top business school. And then he looked for mentorship in all areas of his life, whether that's as a student, an NFL athlete, or when he got into business. He had a couple of mentors in the real estate investing business. And then finally, he ended up where he is now at Merrill Lynch as a vice president with a promotion coming soon. And what he does there is he leads the team to help put together huge business deals where companies are usually buying other companies or going public. The last couple of deals, for example, were $3.3 billion and $1.2 billion acquisitions. So Bryce definitely has the mindset to succeed. And the way he does it is a super straightforward way. He just talks over and over about things like learn to define success, study your craft, maximize your strengths, be real about your weaknesses, and be strong enough to overcome setbacks. I think you'll enjoy the conversation, and like me, you'll learn a lot from it. You'll get to know how you can use the same mindset he has to achieve success in whatever your career field is, and some of the practical steps you can use to make it in the career as an investment banker or as a pro athlete. Now, it'll help if you're 6'4", 280, if the NFL is in your sights. But whatever you do, the mindset and preparation Bryce approaches things with will help you in any field. If you like the show, please subscribe at breakingtheglass.com slash subscribe and leave a review and rating in iTunes. It will help other people find the show and let me know what you like and don't like. Let's get into this conversation, Glass Breakers. Thanks for coming on, sir. Well, we're just going to get into discussing people uh, want to hear on this show about people of color who've had success in their lives and how they were able to get there so they can walk in your footsteps and learn from your wisdom. Um, Bryce, you've done a lot of things in your lifetime, all the way from we were together at the Air Force Academy as Academy grads uh, up to business school. And then you even played in the NFL and now you're in the financial services world. So why don't you start off with a little bit telling us what's your story, man? How did you grow up? Where'd you come from? Uh, what are some highlights of how Bryce became Bryce? Let's do a lightning round background. Bryce became Bryce. Well, you know, I won't go all the way too far back, but uh, I grew up. I grew up in Seattle. Uh, my parents divorced when I was six months old, but had good relationships with both. Uh, my mom is a 
construction worker. So she built bridges and, and large buildings. So she did commercial construction. And then my father was, uh, my father was a, a state patrolman. Um, he'd gone, he was in the army and then he was, a, he was a state patrolman. So, you know, growing up, they kind of set the example of how, how myself and my brothers were supposed to behave. So my mom came to this country as a Panamanian immigrant and she's got the same sets of internally and institutionalized racism that we feel that we as African-Americans feel about ourselves and our community that other populations don't, whether it's, you know, are we lazy? You know, are we, are women trying to get after stuff? Are we just focused on material things, right? And shucking and jiving, whatever. So she, she, she viewed those in a very negative way, but what she really wanted to instill in her children was the exact opposite was this is how I expect you to behave. And don't let anybody tell you just because you're black, you're talking white because you speak proper English. No, no. You spent 12 years in private education. Of course you speak proper English. Right. And then she'd go one step further. She's like, would anybody ever call Malcolm X or Dr. King a sellout? Right. No. Listen to how they speak. Hmm. Do you hear them using language like you hear these so-called real brothers? No, wow. Never. Wow. And she she instilled that in us from a young age. And then she says, whatever it is that you think you want to do. So I had a brother who wanted to play basketball. She was there at every one of his games cheering him on. I said I wanted to play football. She doesn't even understand how football works. But she she knew her kid wanted to do it. I had a brother who's really into math and into engineering. Okay, fine. That's what we're going to go do. And from an early age, she tried to expose us to a lot of different things. And then whatever it is that we showed interest in, she encouraged. Did you guys grow up in like a middle class, upper class, no class? What kind of environment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, she, so she was a construction worker. My father was a cop. So it would have been like kind of working class. If I had to put a, if I had to put a percentile on it, I would say 40th percentile. So somewhere below somewhere below the medium. But you know, I think I can only remember a couple of times when we were kids where, you know, money was tight or food was food was short. You know, when that when we were I remember a few times when I was like five, six, seven years old that there were issues. But for the most part, you know, I didn't ask for more because I didn't know that that I needed more. <laughs> right? I don't know how to better I don't know how to better describe it, right? I mean, we had enough to eat. We had you know, one or two pairs of, of shoes. We had, you know, a couple of a couple of pairs of pants. I didn't need more than that, right? Um, so I didn't I didn't know the difference in our social status or our economic socioeconomic status um, probably until I got into high school. In high school, then I started to see the difference between the way that we lived and the way that others lived. But through kind of my formative years, you know, until I was 14, 15 years old, everybody around us was in the same situation. You had a pair of church, you had a pair of church shoes, you had a pair, you had a pair of tennis shoes, you had a pair of school shoes, right? You had a pair of jeans and you had a you had a pair of corduroys or a pair of slacks. You had, you know, a couple of pair, a couple of t-shirts, um, a couple of button-up shirts, you know, you had a winter coat in the winter, and you know, you you you, you had your 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 sports stuff, whether it was basketball or or baseball, and that's all you needed. And, you know, I 
picked up football, I guess. I was I played football for the first time at 14, so my freshman year of high school was the first time I started playing and I just loved it. And it was it was very clear that you know, that was going to be my opportunity to get to college. Um, and so my parents, you know, they just kind of encouraged me to, to play and to be as good as I could be. And what made you pick it up? Like what interested you about football? Well, it's, you know, it, it's, it was, it was, it was the first sport that was okay to be the big guy, right. Okay. And every other sport and every other sport, they actually encourage you to be relatively small. Um, whether it's basketball or, 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 or baseball, you know, but football was, was one where it was okay to be the big guy. Right. And, you know, and there was, you know, it was an opportunity to let out aggression and, and nobody was going to get mad at you if you, if you knock somebody else down versus if you do any of that in any other sport, they kick you out the game. So, right. um, so it kind of, it fit with it. it football fits with my personality. Yeah. Okay. So did you have like an aggressive, strong, big type of personality coming up? I was, I was the, I was the big goofy guy. Right. Okay. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, as when, when you're the big guy, um, it's a different, it's hard to explain what, you know, and every time when you grow up, you go get some plate of food, everybody has something to say, right. When yeah. you're the big guy and you know, kids are playing and wrestling and everybody says, Oh, be careful. You know, you're bigger than everybody else. Well, Football was the exact opposite. They say, you know what? You want to get get a self, second helping of macaroni and cheese? Go get yourself something to eat. <laughs> you know, if you want to if you want to get out there and 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 put hands, then you can do that. Right. Um, what's the so? What's know, a I mean, big accomplishment you had early on in football to let you know this is the place I need to be? So the high school I went to, I went to a, I went to a, pre, a predominantly white high school. I was the only black kid on my football team. And we would go play, but we played in the city league. I went to a Catholic school, but we played in the city league. So we would play all the schools that were predominantly black. And, you know, you wouldn't believe what what, what I would hear kind of coming out of the crowd, kind of from the other team. Right. But once we, cro- once we crossed those white lines, you know, they knew they had hell to deal with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, it didn't matter what environment it was. And I just kind of knew that, you know, I could play in any environment, whether I was, you know, whether we were down by 30 or up by 30, they knew that, that you know, that something different was going to come from me. Okay. That's cool. And how did you get to the point where you were recognized on a level that, you know, you ended up playing division one football? Um, what kind of things gave you that mentality that you can compete anywhere so you can get recognized on that level? Well, so, you know, the, the Air Force Academy was the only, the only division one scholarship I had. Okay. Um, you know, the, the colleges do a pretty good job. If you're good enough, they'll find you. Um, but when I went to like the little um, summer camp at the University of Washington, I still remember talking with the lead recruiter and him telling me he wasn't going to recruit me because I was too small. OK. Right. At the time, I was like six two, two thirty, 230. Um, and that was too small, they thought to be a defensive lineman. Right. And the challenge was, you know, I grew a couple inches in college, you know, yep. I grew, I grew two inches, two and a half inches while we were at the Academy. Okay. Um, but you know, at, at that time, you know, they want you to be full grown at 15, 16 years old. Right. But, you know, I was a late bloomer. And so the Academy, um, you know, they, they bring in a hundred players every year, you know, and some are good, some not so much, but, you know, all they promise you is an opportunity and a good education. So 
those are two things that that worked for me. Yep. Okay. And you got to the academy. A lot of people get to the Air Force Academy and it's a tough school to get into. Uh, but once you get there, it's a real deal. You're in the military. Um, what was the experience like for you transitioning into that in terms of being a cadet versus going to a regular school? So, you know, the, the academy is kind of an interesting thing. It's it, The academics of the academy, I don't think are particularly that difficult because they put so many resources around you to be successful. Right. Um, it's not like other places where, I mean, all the, the instructors, all they do is teach. So, you know, if you need to, to, to stay late or set up office time with your, with your instructor, you know, they've got, they can do that all evening. And, and, and so if you, well, if you're willing to put in the work, I don't think the academy academically is 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 harder than any other school. Okay. What 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 makes the academy I think so difficult is all the other aspects of being there, right? Whether it's waking up at six o'clock every morning for um, to clean the dorms, or whether it's the marching, the PT, the you know the first the, the fourth class system. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you're taking more classes than you would at a, at a traditional school, it's, it's kind of all those other things where they, in those four years, it kind of puts you through a crucible with the expectation that on the other side, you know, you're somebody who can, who can be a leader in the Air Force. Right. I think that's the part that was, was challenging at the Academy, but it's also the things that, that made me kind of who I am. It's the way that I, I look at the world now is, is directly um, a result of, of kind of our experiences at the Academy. Tell me more about that. Like what's one thing that you picked up or two about how you look at the world at the Air Force Academy that, that make you who you are right now? So in both football and, you know, kind of the rest of your life at the Academy, it's, it's kind of a no excuses environment. Um, either you do or you don't do what you're supposed to do. And it's not really you know, it's not. It, and what I found is that in the civilian world, it's much more ambiguous. Yeah. About you know, and there's a lot more you know gray, shades of gray. But at the academy, that's not what it is. Especially when you're playing when you're playing sports, right? Okay. I mean, um, you know, I thought business school was easy because it, I didn't have three hours in the middle of my day where I was playing football. Right. Right. I didn't have you know the two hours or or whatever the time is that you had with your military stuff. Right. You know, so. To me, college is more about college at the academy was about managing your time, managing the different stresses, you know, being able to play, you know, being able to manage multiple things at the same time is something that I use today. You know, that's even in addition to, you know, the discipline piece or, um, you know, the, the preparation. Now, people, so people know or may not know, I guess, that. As a college Division One athlete, not only do you have your regular class schedule, but you have, like you said, three hours a day where you're doing practice. Plus, you have to travel often throughout the the fall um, and the early winter to go participate in all the games that you play. So you miss a lot of school. But on top of that, what I tell people sometimes is I had a friend who was in the Texas University of Texas Honors Business Program. They had to petition the dean of the college to take more than five classes. We had a, <laughs> a minimum of five classes we took per semester. Many people took six, had a friend who took seven and nine classes his senior year, three hour courses, you know, each semester. So you had to manage that. Plus you had all your, your military 
uh, responsibilities, like you mentioned, on top of all that. How in the world? And then then you were an excellent football player. You didn't just play. You played enough to get noticed by the NFL. So you said you just did these things like it was almost automatic. How did you develop the ability to manage your time well, to be disciplined and and to get to that point where you said it's no excuses and you and you perform. Some people say they can't handle the pressure and they leave or they don't perform. What is it in you that that developed and that grew that helped you um, be one of the few people I've ever heard that say the academy's academics is easy and I manage football and I manage military um, because of my discipline to make it sound nonchalant. What did you do to get there? Well, I didn't say the academy was easy. When I said it was, it was, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be because there's so many resources at the academy to help you be successful if you're focused on those things, right? Um, so, so when I think about time management, it's, it's, you know, let's take your your question in a couple pieces, right? So, if we're going to talk time management, you know, the academy. What I what I what I did that I think was a little different, and the coaches actually encouraged me to do it. I did summer school virtually every year that we were there. So it, I took one one class during the summer, which allowed me to not have to take that class during the school year. Okay. So if you know you've got four years that you've got to get through however many classes, taking classes during the summer, which is actually, I think, a, a, a great advantage. You can just focus on one class. You get up. You go to class all day, then you go to the gym afterwards, um, and then you just bang it out. And right. that limit that reduces the stress from from the number of classes that you have to take later. I think that's one. Okay. I think two is being willing to to ask for help. Mm. Um, so, for instance, at the academy, you have to take um, aerodynamics, astrodynamics, and thermodynamics. Right. Yep. All things that. I'm pretty sure I will never use again in life. Right. But I recognize that I wasn't going to be successful unless I was willing to reach out and get help. And so literally when I took thermodynamics every other day for an hour and a half, I was in the the instructor's office either doing my homework with her or getting extra instruction to make sure that I understood the concept she was trying to teach. Got right? it. Because for those six months that you're taking the class or four months or however long you last, all you have to do is make sure you're you're successful. And the definition of success for me in that scenario was if I can get a B in that class, yep. I end up getting an A. But I was like, if I can get a B in that class, then I'm doing fine, right? Got it. And that kind of leads to the third piece, which is kind of learning how to define success. So some places at the academy, I was gonna, I knew I was gonna be able to get an A on. So I had to make sure I got A's in those classes. Other classes where there was going to be a bigger struggle, then I had to define success as getting a B or, or, or a B minus, just making sure that I didn't have to repeat the class. Yeah. Right. And then doing everything I, I can to, to, get, to get where I needed to go. Got right? it. And then the football piece, you know, I actually had a coach and I use this, I use this today to this day, right? So my coach, Jappy Oliver, who, um, he, he was coaching at the university of Virginia. I think he might've just retired, but yeah. one of the things, one of the things he made us all do was get a notebook and take notes. And I'm thinking to myself at the time, who takes notes is football. And he's like, <laughs> no, you've got to, you've got to study your craft. You got to study this mm. like you're studying your classes. And all the way through my 
college career and through my pro career, I used to keep a notebook and I would take copious amounts of notes on every player I was playing, the 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 different positions, not just my own plays. What were the plays they were running against me? Right. What were the situations? And I would study those every day. Hmm. And now in the job that I have, and I know we'll get into what I do now, but later, but I still take an incredible amount of notes and yeah. I keep it all in, I keep it all in one notebook that allows me, and I put a date on it, allows me to basically go back through time and jog my memory if there's anything that needs to get done. Hmm. That's very smart. That's very big. I think I've heard that, um, and, and it's public knowledge that Peyton Manning was the same type of person. He kept lots of notes on all scenarios. So he knew what was coming. Greg, Greg Maddox, the pitcher, I okay. heard that he had notes going back 15 years wow. on, on batters where he would know I threw this pitch in this scenario and this is how he reacted. Wow. Right. And all I know is that if you're, it, you're, you're in the NFL, the difference between players is not oftentimes who's got physically more talent because everybody's good, right? It's who's more prepared than the other. Yeah. Now I ain't going to, so you, you did well enough to not just graduate from the air force Academy, but your senior year, you were the conference defensive player of the year. Um, you led the team in, or you led the team in sacks, if I'm not mistaken, um, had six sacks, forced fumble recovery. And you really came up, man. And, and not many, if I'm not mistaken, the only big, uh, academy players that I knew that made it to the NFL and got significant time were like you and Chad Henning. That's right. It's it's myself and Chad Hennings. Um, I played nine years. Chad, I think, played eight or nine years as well. That's a pretty small club, man. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. I saw that you were the sixth to last player drafted in the NFL the season you were drafted. I was. I was. I was. Now I think I might have been the fifth because I was. I was picked number 248 out of 253. Okay. So uh, you were five people from Mr. Irrelevant. I now, know, right? Some people may take that as a loss, but you took that in May. You said a nine-year career out of it, man. So what was the transition like from college to NFL? And uh, and tell us just how that experience was. You know, kind of, again, going back to kind of defining your success. So there was no way I was going to be a first round pick. Right. Okay. So the, the Academy, I had to serve a couple of years active. You know, I was coming from a, from a, a, a mid-major school, um, you know, and I, I was, I was talented, but it wasn't like, I mean, that, that year we had Patrick Kearney in that draft. Yeah. Um, Javon Curse. I mean, there were wow. a lot of really good players in that draft. Okay. Um, and so just so I know, yeah. let me just ask an inside question. Were you so let's say you didn't have the two year because people may not know that in the military academies, you got to serve at least two years after you get out before they let you go play professional football. But were you top dr round draft talent, according to the scouts and stuff? So, you know, they, at that time, they didn't really kind of tell you as much. But my guess was that I was something third, fourth round okay. type of talent, type of talent. Right. And. But anyway, so the, the key point is, you know, defining success in that environment was just getting drafted. Right. It wasn't so much could I get drafted high or get drafted, you know, or go or drafted low. It was just 
get drafted, get into get into a camp where you could show that you could play. Yeah. Um, and and so the Bills drafted me. I still remember we I got the call um, on a whatever it was a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, there's there's no way to describe when they call you and say, we know you we have to wait two years for you. Yeah. But we think you're a good enough football player that you're worth the wait. Wow. Right. And so I went to camp that first year, um, you know, knowing that I couldn't I couldn't play for for a couple of years. Okay. And how did you so what was that like? What was the experience like? What was it like playing against professional players versus coming from college? What was that transition like mentally, physically, all those kind of things? So and I was 21 when I got drafted. Right. So I, I was the youngest guy in the locker room no antoine winfield was younger than me okay so i was the second there was only two this it wasn't at that time not as many people went pro you know as juniors right and most of the time you know people were seniors there was a few guys that went as juniors but most of the time you did your four years of school at that time and so i myself and a guy named antoine winfield were the two youngest guys in the locker room we were both 21 okay um when we got drafted and I walked in, there was a guy named Antoine Smith. He played for the Patriots as well. Yep. And Antoine was bigger than me. Okay. He played, and he played tailback. Wow. Um, and <laughs> there was a dude, there's a guy there named Jamie Nails who went to, who went to FAMU. Yeah. And Jamie was 6'6", 385 pounds. Jeez. <laughs> playing offensive line. Right. Oh. And... I mean, being around these guys, they were all enormous, yeah. and then they were incredibly fast. So that first, that first camp, you know, that first mini camp, which is basically just spring football, just seeing the size of those guys yeah. and how fast they were was like it was a whole new ball game. And Antoine Winfield was no joke. Like this is three time Pro Bowl top 50 Vikings of all time. Like you got drafted with some players. That's right. I mean, it might, the draft that we, there were, there were eight of us that got drafted. And I want to say six of us ended up being, being uh, full-time starters in the league. Wow. Okay. So you get in and see these enormous, huge guys. What was it like once you started hitting up against one another coming from doing this in college to now you're, you're hitting against some grown men as they say. So that was actually the part when, when we went out to practice and they put me out on the field, then it was just football. Yeah. And at that point, you know, I just let whoever I was, that's what I did. I ran into, um, do you remember when we were, when we were shortly after we graduated from the Academy, um, was the Columbine massacre yeah, in, yep. um, in Denver. Yeah. And so I, and through that, I, I went up to the Academy because Eric, Eric Woodring, who went to school with us, you know, he went to Columbine. And so the co- the football coach had asked a few of us to come up there and just kind of be with the kids. And they had also brought in a bunch of local celebrities. So Denver Broncos, Colorado Rockies, you know, Colorado Avalanche, et cetera. And I met Terrell Davis okay. through that experience. And Terrell, I, ta- I was talking to Terrell, and this is what Terrell said. He said, the key to the NFL, to being in the NFL and being successful in the NFL is, being who you are, hmm. whatever it is that you did that got you drafted, do that and focus on doing that. Don't try to be what other players are. 
And I just kind of stuck with that. My whole career was I'm going to study ahead of the time. I'm going to play to my strengths. I'm going to make sure I'm prepared. Um, And I did that every single, I tried to do that every single day while I played. And then you look up nine years later, you, you know, you play in high plus games, you know, 50 plus starts, you know, 20 something sacks. I mean, you know, my resume in the NFL is far exceeds the 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 physical talent right. that you would have thought when I went through the combine. Right. Right. And it's it's big time. You spent uh, what was it about four years in Buffalo? It was three years in Buffalo, three in St. Louis, two in Seattle and one in Tennessee. Now, once you I think it's it's you you played well, but it's you so once you got to that end of that uh Buffalo career early early uh St. Louis, you started to really shine. How did you take that? And if I'm not mistaken, you correct me, but how did you take just studying and and not being intimidated? Tell me about the mindset that you had to maintain that over a sustained period of time to where you started to get to the point where you were leading your team in sacks on the teams you were yeah. playing on. So when I when I got to St. Louis, right, I got cut from Buffalo. And so, you know, there's nothing worse than, than getting cut. Right. But I got to St. Louis was the perfect scenario for me because I played for Lovey Smith was the defense coordinator and Mike Martz was the head coach. Okay. And you know, so I go into a locker room. Let me tell you some of the cats that was in this locker room. Marshall Falk, wow. first ballot Hall of Fame. <laughs> Aeneas Williams, Hall of Fame. Yeah. Orlando Pace, Orlando Pace, Hall of Fame. Tory Holt, Isaac Bruce, Kurt Warner. The first person to introduce themselves to me when I walked into St. Louis was Kurt Warner. Wow. Who had just came off another MVP year. I mean, um, incredible guy. But anyways, the the mentality at at um, at, uh, at St. Louis at that time was very different than other teams in the league because their whole thing was play fast, but it wasn't just run fast, but it was be mentally fast. Mm. So they they had a they had really thin game plans, and they really focused on your your skill set, whatever it is that you're really good at do that. Huh. Sounds familiar, gonna, right? We're we're not going to ask you, we're not going to ask you to do things that are unnatural for your skill set. Okay. Right? I think that's one. And then two, at that time you didn't have a lot of defensive linemen teams. But they asked me if I wanted to try special teams in order to get on the field more. Right. And this will make you laugh, but there are certain positions where you're responsible for heading the right direction. Usually on special teams, there's one or two guys that have to be responsible for getting people lined up and being able to understand formations and adjustments. Right. And the person who was going to be in that role in St. Louis, he wasn't going to make the football team. And so they were going to cut him. Wow. And so the, the week before we kicked off against the Giants, they put me in that position. Wow. For for no other reason than because they knew that I would be able to to get us into the right formations. Right. And I could learn it in a matter of days what somebody had spent the, the whole summer and all of fall camp. Wow. Wow. And, and how, did, how did it turn out? Well, I mean, I ended up leading the league in special team tackles that year. Uh, <laughs> I ended up having like 30 special team tackles. Wow. Um, that year. But it, it, it's not so much the 
the physical ability. It was more, could you get, could, cause, cause a blocked punt in the NFL, you know, you lose the game. If a punt gets blocked, it's something like 90% of the time you lose the game. Wow. And, and so making sure you could get in the right play. Plus what that did is it got in the NFL, not everybody who is on the team dresses for every game. So, but if you're on special teams and you can play defense, I mean, that basically allows the team to have two players for the cost of one on the roster. Right. And so being a defensive lineman, so I was, so I was, I was on all the special teams and then I was the first defensive lineman off the bench that first year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's so what I'm noticing here, man, is you, you get into a situation and you're very honest about where you are and what you're bringing to the table. And then whatever the scenario is, you just maximize your natural gifts. So you, you assess what you got, you assess what your strengths are, and you play as strong as you can to those strengths is what I, I'm hearing as a theme throughout whatever's happening so far in life. I, I think that's right, because I, I can't be any better. I can't be anything other than than Bryce. Yeah. So I spend I spend almost I spend as little time as possible trying to be anything else than other than who I am. Right. And when, when I focus on those things, I found myself to be more successful as a football player because I did make mistakes where I was, where I was trying to do things as an athlete that didn't fit with my skill set, And I ended up looking really bad. Yeah. And, and in the NFL, if you look really bad, a, you can get yourself hurt. Right. But B, you know, it's it's a very mercenary world. If you play poorly on a Sunday, you could be out of a job Tuesday. Wow. Wow. So under pressure, you knew that being you was the most important thing. It's, it's the only way to be successful, right? It, it uh, is. The thing is, especially in this current social media culture where you see how great everybody else's life all the time even though it's usually not 100% true. And and there's there's also in America, it's the American dream that everyone's chasing all the time. People don't always go for that, though. They're not always comfortable saying, let me just be me. Um, what do you think it is within you that allowed you to stick with it over time? Stick with being Bryce. Yeah. So you know, I, I go back to, first of all, I, I have a strong faith. I have strong faith in God. Right. Um, I, I have this incredible family that I'm from, both my parents, my brothers, and there's and, and, and all the way for me growing up, there was never um, there was never a comparison between either my siblings or other 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 kids. Mm. It was very much focused on you be the best you you can be. Period. Yeah. Right. I mean, I. I grew up, my oldest brother, he played, he ended up playing pro basketball. Wow. Right. And then my middle brother, you know, he's a civil engineer and he was always kind of one of these math guys. Yeah. And my family, my parents never tried to force my, my, my brother, Anthony, who's not a good athlete at all, never tried to force him into sports. Wow. Right. And they never, you know, whatever they, what they were, what they were always about was whatever it is that you're interested in doing. Let's go do that and do that to the best of our ability. Yeah. Whether it's football, whether it's math, whether it's academics, whatever it is, let's let's just go do that as well as you possibly can do it. Wow. 
Wow. No, that's that's really I think that's major. And I hope people pull that aside, because if you can figure out what you're good at, what you're what you're excellent at in the environment that you're in and do it to the best of your abilities, there's no limit to where you can go. So you're a what they would say, an undersized defensive lineman. And you take it to the place where at the Rams by the end, and this is on the greatest show on turf. This is like the Kurt Warner came from a grocery store clerk to being a Super Bowl champion and MVP. And he actually just got recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. And all the players you mentioned are like all Hall of Fame type guys. You come in there and say, I can fit into this environment because sometimes people get in those high success environments and don't know if they can fit in. But you were you thought yourself and were encouraged by others to just be the best Bryce you can ended up leading the team in, in sacks. Um, why don't you, do you have a story that at St. Louis has looked like where you kind of hit your arc? What's a story you could tell that said that, that this like a really cool story that said, I'm achieving at a high level. I think I've arrived and I'm kind of at the peak of what I, what I want to do before you end up getting out to the, to the Seahawks. So I'll actually, I'll tell two, two stories, right? When I got to St. Louis, so the, I'd gotten cut from Buffalo and there's nothing lower than getting cut, but I'd actually, and I'll admit it, I, I came to camp out of shape. And when you get to St. Louis, St. Louis, they play so fast, um, you know, from a, from a practice level. I mean, it's hard practices. You're hitting the, they expect everybody to be full on sprinting from the time you hit the field. And so we're doing drills and midway through drills, I had to pull myself out. And I remember holding onto the fence, puking. And the coach, Bill Kolar, who I think he's the coach, at, uh, he's one of the coaches at at, uh, at Houston now. He literally yells at me. He's like, "When you're done throwing up, get back in the drill." <laughs> and and like there was there was no sympathy for it. Oh, there was. And and here's what's actually funny: nobody was actually angry or embarrassed or felt bad. They right. Just, everybody at, the, at what what after the fact, right after practice. The other defensive linemen had all told me, you know what? We've all been there. Yeah. The way that St. Louis prepares at that time, the way that they prepared to play was far and away more intense than any environment that I'd ever been in. Wow. And I knew, like, I mean, you have to compete at a very high level in order to compete there. I mean, the, the guys that you mentioned that are that I mentioned earlier, I mean, there was what, four or five Hall of Famers on that one team? Yeah. You know, if you want to play and you want to get noticed in that environment, you'd better step all the way up. Right. Wow. Wow. So you you ended up, I imagine you ended up getting back in better shape. And you kind of, obviously you stepped up to the game because you performed yeah. very well in St. Louis. Man, that's uh, that's serious business right there. It was, it was. And, and what it did is it showed, you know, is another thing, it was, another, it was a lesson in life where, there was a gap between the expectations and who I was mm. at that time professionally. Okay. And there were only two outcomes. Either I was going to close that gap or I was going to be out of football. Right. And, and I, I, let me dig again. Like what in you said, let me close the gap. Cause I'm sure there were other guys in camp that didn't make it through and were probably out of football. Yeah. And I mean, there's all the platitudes apply, right? Hard work, be prepared, all that other stuff. But, I think it was also partly being honest with myself that here's the set of expectations that are required to be successful. If I don't meet those expectations, by definition, I'll be unsuccessful. Yeah. And so can I come up with a plan 
to meet those expectations. So, so one was about getting in better shape. Two was about playing to my strengths. Right. And then the third one, this is, this is something I think helped me in St. Louis. And it was kind of a, it was an opportunity that just kind of fell in my lap. One, it was playing special teams, but two, I was never afraid of contact. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys in the NFL that we, we, we would call turtles, like guys who who you could see pull their head back and try to hide in their shell. Yeah. Well, that was never me. Um, And being willing to run and compete at a pace that other people aren't willing to do. Mm. Right. What it does is it kind of shows the other person, here's where I'm willing to play at. Here's the sacrifices I'm willing to make. If you're not willing to make those sacrifices, I win. Hmm. Now, and, the, I, I want to dig a little bit more if we can, if you can think of it. Yeah. What's one, if you were talking to somebody else, and I know you give speeches at schools and you and you give talks to encourage other people in the community. So that's the what. You just make it sound so mechanical. I wasn't doing well, made a plan, did better. It's what's in somebody's head in that in-between time that makes them be willing to make the plan or even execute the plan that makes a difference. What's one thing you tell people, you got to have this if you want to face those situations and actually, and you know how to make the plan, here's what's going to get you through to a successful execution of that plan. So there's a lot of people in this world who are lying to themselves, Okay. who are, who are saying that they're better than they are or who are saying that this is what you'll hear. Like, oh, don't worry. I got it. I got it figured out. Right. And then they continually show that they don't have it. And I had to be honest with myself about what was the gap between the expectations and my own performance level and how do I close those gaps? And so I was never going to be a guy who was going to run a four, five or four, six, 40. I was, that was never going to be that. But what I could be was the guy who ran hard every play. Right. So the guy, so my, my four, eight or four, nine against the guy who's jogging, who runs a four, six, I beat him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, so we, like I said, I led the league in special teams tackles in 2004. And it wasn't because I was faster than everybody or a better athlete. It was just the fact that I was willing to run harder down the field. Mm. And so we played at that time in the NFL, they still allowed wedges where you'd have these big collisions and I was a wedge buster. So I would run as hard as I could down the field, did not slow down anything. Right. And I would run right through whoever was in my way. And I, and I remember in week three, we played the Seahawks. Biggest collision I think I've ever been in. And, you know, it's probably bad now, especially because of all the concussion stuff. But that set the tone. Literally, when anybody else put on film, me running down the field, it changed the way that other players approached me. Yeah. Because they they weren't willing to make that that sacrifice. Right. You know what I mean? You got guys making a lot of money that, you know, they feel good about themselves. Are you really willing to make that sacrifice? Right. And so when I talk, like even the young people that work for me now, everybody wants, says they want to be an investment banker. They want to make the money investment bankers do, you know, work on these large transactions that end up in the Wall Street Journal. But are you really willing to make the sacrifices that are required to be successful? Either you are or you're not. Yeah. And I only want to be around people. I only want to be around people who are. Got it. Got it. Well, you said you had a good, a bad story and a good story. What was the good story? 
So that was a bad one. So the good story was we played against Green Bay that year. Brett Favre, the whole deal. We played against Green Bay. And I end up, I wasn't starting at the time. I was playing behind um, behind Grant Wistrom. Okay. And I, I, I'm covering kicks. And that, in that game, if I still remember it correctly, right, you know, I led the team in, in special teams tackles, and I led all defensive linemen in tackles despite playing only 50% of the snaps. Wow. Right? And what that says is, is that if you get an opportunity, take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. Right? And by the time we get to the end of that year, Right. I mean, I had what 30 something special teams tackles, however many cause fumbles. You know, I had a couple sacks on defense. I was playing at a very high level despite not being the full time starter. Right. Because, you know, I accepted who I was on the team and tried to maximize any opportunity I was on the field. Yeah. I was trying to I was trying to maximize that opportunity. Yeah. You know, I had a um a boss one time and I, I was like eager beaver, you know, trying to be get promoted as fast as I could. And I asked him like, what do I gotta do in order to get promoted? He was like, be excellent at the job you're in right now. And and so and this is in corporate America. This sounds like that crosses right up to what you're saying. It's the same principle. If you be great at what you are right now, then you'll get recognized. Hopefully you'll get recognized for your efforts. And you were, you led the team in sacks in your last year at the Rams. And then you got picked up to go back home to, to, to Seattle and got picked up by the Seahawks. Uh, they, you went from being a backup player to a four year, $10 million contract, which is big, solid money. Um, and, and then started for the Seahawks all the way to, to plan a really, that was, and that was, those are great St. Louis teams. You also run a great Seahawks team. Tell me about the experience there um, at that place, playing for the Seahawks and going back home. So, so they, the only thing I asked for when I was a free agency, I was like, I'm only willing to leave St. Louis if somebody's willing to sign me with the intention that I will be their starter. Yeah. If, if they're just signing me with the intention that I'm a, I'm going to be, you know, a backup and a special teams player, I'll just go back to St. Louis yeah. because I don't need, I don't need to leave. Right. Um, for that. But if somebody's willing to sign me with the intention, that I'm going to be a starter. And so what's, what's, what's interesting about markets is, you know, everything's about a market, you know, for, for whether you're buying groceries, you're buying cars, you're buying athletes at, in the free agent market, there's different, there's asymmetry of information. So the Seahawks thought that they were bidding against multiple other teams. Went, but I knew there was only one team that was offering me an opportunity to be a starter. Right. And that was Seattle. <laughs> nice. And so if they would have known that, they wouldn't have offered me the contract that they did. Right. They would have offered me much less, but they didn't know that. And so they signed me for the contract. You know, and I remember I got my I got my sign in bonus. Um, and this is again, this was before direct deposit. So I actually got my check. I actually got a check. <laughs> but I but I didn't have a bank account in Seattle to be able to deposit the money. Okay. And so the check literally sat in my dad's car for like a, like a couple of weeks until I got a bank account set up and I could receive, have somebody receive the money. Oh. So my dad was laughing. He's like, are you telling me right now there's a check for X dollars sitting in my car? Like, yep. <laughs> That's hilarious. Man. Uh, yeah. And so, but Seattle was, an, it was, a, it was, a, it was an interesting time. The 2005 Seahawks because the, the 2003-2004 Seahawks were very talented teams, teams that at the beginning of the year 
people thought were going to have a chance to make that next that next jump. Right. But they always chronically underachieved. And the owner, Paul Allen, you know, founder of Microsoft, he they brought in a new general manager and that general manager fired so many players Mm. and he cut so many very talented people because they weren't the types of players that he thought could you could win with. Okay, there's a difference between guys who play well in spurts, but are they somebody who you can win with consistently? and completely remade the entire defense Mm. in one year, right? We had what, seven new starters, I think in that year. Yeah. And it was, it was a lot of guys that were, there were a few pretty talented guys. Um, but the majority of the team were, were guys who achieved on, on hard work, on preparation, on maximizing their abilities. Right. Right. And, and, we played in that environment together. He was trying and to change the mentality of the team. It sounds like he—he—that's exactly what he was doing, right? He—he was—he—he he had to—he had to, you know, addition by subtraction. Yeah. He had to get certain guys out of the locker room, guys who didn't come to work every day, didn't come prepared. Guys, there were a couple of guys that had, um, you know, that had behavioral problems, and he wanted nothing to do with that. Right. He's like. We, this not who this team is going to be because you can't win with those guys. They might show up and look great every once in a while and they make some amazing plays, but there's 16 games in a season. Yeah. If you only play well in one or two of them and you, yeah, great. That looks great on ESPN, but I need you for 16 games, not right. just one or two. Right. Well, you started here and this was a good Seahawks team. Um, you guys achieved so well that you ended up, even playing in the Super Bowl versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I had to I had to look back and remember this game, man, because so I'm going to admit, man, I'm 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 from Texas, grew up in Texas. So I'm a Cowboys fan. It helped me be a Chad Henning fan that he was a Cowboys player as well. But I, I definitely was a Bryce Fisher fan, man, because that Academy connection. And I, and I knew you personally and was rooting for you. And 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 what is it like to go from now you've gone from college to playing the NFL to, to, to maximizing your skills and being the best you that you can to now you're on a team that's playing at, at what is the highest level in the Super Bowl. What was that like? Well, losing the Super Bowl is the worst feeling I've ever had in my professional life. Yeah. Bar none. Right. But that season, we didn't lose. We didn't lose for three months. Mm. We that that team, we started off two and two. And we finished 13 and three. Wow. Right. Um, and, and most of those games weren't, I mean, weren't close. Mm. Um, we were just, we were a very good team. And then we, we played, um, we played Atlanta or no, we played Washington in the first round and then we played, um, we played Carolina and then we went, then we went to the Super Bowl against Pittsburgh. And unfortunately we didn't win the game, but you want to talk about a set of guys coming together I mean, all the platitudes work, but, you know, that environment, like the, running out on the field at the Super Bowl, the cameras going off, it's, there's no way to describe it. I don't have the words to express what it's like to play in a Super Bowl. You there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. So you ain't gonna say no words. You don't have the words. I, I, <laughs> I don't. Oh, okay. I, don't, I literally, I literally don't have the words to describe what, what it's like to run out 
and you know, it's like, it's like you've got children, right? Yeah. I don't want to make a crass comparison. No, it's okay. But there's, there's no, I can't, there's no way that I can explain to you what it feels like the first time you hold your child. Fair enough. Right. Like it, it's either you've experienced that or not. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you got there and you're in the environment and, and it, like like many Super Bowls over the past 15 years, this is a great game. I mean, you guys are coming down with an opportunity to score. I think you were down 10 to 14, had an opportunity to score to get back ahead and, and look at being Super Bowl champs. And then there was an unfortunate interception right there. How do you, like, what's the emotion that lets you deal with, first of all, that turnaround and then ultimately losing the Super Bowl? How do you deal with, because I think this will help people deal with situations where they have significant loss and not getting thrown off by it. Um, how do you deal with that turnaround from we're almost there to not to then ultimately losing the game and, and recovering from that? So that game, you know, I picked the, the worst time to have a poor game, mm. right? I did, I did not play well in that game. And I, I still believe that nine out of 10 games, the guy who I was playing against should not be able to block me. Mm. But that, but that day he blocked me well. The whole game. Yeah. You know, there were a couple of times where, you know, maybe it's one player, one, one step or the other, and it would have been a different outcome, but there's, there's nothing you can do about that now. And what the NFL teaches, what football teaches is how to not live in the past. Right. You, whether you play well or play poorly on any given play, it has zero impact on the next play. Right. You hear what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And so, the ability to put things behind you hmm. to to move on is a critical skill that I think athletics generally teaches, but football in particular, because you have you have 60 plays and each play is its own is its own is its own little microcosm of that day. And so winning that play, winning that game, winning that series, that's the definition of success. Yeah. So we we lose the Super Bowl. There's no worse feeling. I take a week to mourn yeah. losing that game. And then the next week, I'm back in the gym. Right. Right. You and just have to move on. Yeah. You you've gotta you've gotta be you gotta get back into your routine and get back, get back, you know, get back on the horse, get back on the saddle, whatever you want to call it. You gotta be willing to put it behind you. And so I, 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 I spend almost no time dwelling on bad events huh. or good or even on good events. Okay. Right. You, you'll rarely hear me brag or talk about things unless somebody asks me specifically like you have, you'll rarely hear me talk about things that happened last year or five years from five years ago. You're not one of these guys in the bar talking about uh, way back when. Al Bundy was the only person I saw be successful talking about on, on Married with Children. <laughs> right? I, if you ask me about football, I'll talk about it. If you ask me about something that happened at the bank where we did a large deal, I'll talk about it. Yeah. But other than that, I I, I don't plan to live in the past because you know that's not where my life is going. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, uh, is there if you can't use any words to describe the the experience of playing what's one memory that stands out in the super bowl that you still think sticks with you today and also helps still define who you are so well, actually two things happened in the super bowl right one was 
before the games, before home games, I would always go and find my family. Yeah, because you right? were living back I, at home, like you're playing in Seattle. I was living you grew in, Seattle. Up in Seattle. But even when, even when I played for the played for the Rams, right? I'd go find my ex-wife, and you know, wife at the time. I'd go. I had to know where my family was, even though I know where their seats were. Yep. I had to always make sure. So when we played the Super Bowl, I knew exactly where my family was sitting. Yeah. Right. They were in the end zone, you know, about a third of the way up in that first section. So go find them. Because I always found that finding my family in any environment kind of roots me. Right. Says, okay, I'm good. There's my brothers. There's my mom. There's my dad. We're good. Yeah. And now I can go and do what I need to do. That's one. So that's that's on the good side. The bad side is one of the reasons why the Super Bowl losing the Super Bowl is so embarrassing is what you see when somebody wins all the confetti and all mm. the cameras and all that stuff. Everybody rushing the field. It's this very exciting moment. If you're the winner. Yeah. If you're the loser, what people don't see on TV is there's a whole cadre of security that's basically pushing you off the field, wow. literally, sh- literally shoving you out of the way. Make way for the winners is basically what's happened. Wow. Right. And there's never a more embarrassing feeling hmm. than that. Hmm. You go into the locker room and there is no, we'll get them next time. That's just the end of the season. Yeah. Um, but, and to her credit, you know, after that environment, my ex-wife, she wasn't embarrassed at all, one bit about it. She was like, you know what? I'm still with you. Yeah. You know, I'm still, it's still you and me. And it's that rooting, like kind of that, that front end rooting and back end rooting, regardless of what happens during those three hours, that family is still there. It seems like you've mentioned family a lot from the beginning. And even now that family was a big factor in you being the person who you are. No question. No question. I mean, being a fisher and being... Being, you know, I'm the I'm the youngest of three boys, and you know, my parents, my, you know, I've got um, friends that are feel like family. Yeah. You know, being connected matters, right? Like, n- none of us do anything just by ourselves. Right. No, that's good, man. You surrounded yourself with people who can support your success. I wonder. Um, so you had an awesome career in the NFL, but that wasn't it for you. And you didn't, you went into a pretty intense competitive career field after football in the investment banking world. Now you first made a stop. It looks like syndicating real estate deals. Um, and then into the investment banking world, what drew, what drew you to this area of business and, um, and, and what was that transition like leaving football and going into the to the private business world. So I always knew I, I always knew I wanted to be in finance. Okay. I didn't know it was called I didn't know it was called investment banking, but I always knew I wanted to be in finance um, and work with large transactions. And so between retiring from football and business school, I worked with a guy in Seattle who uh, he owned a bunch of real estate and he was. Um, raising money and investing on other people's behalf in okay. real estate in Seattle. And I had invested with him a little bit, but he also gave me the opportunity to learn business because for the previous decade, I was either in the military or playing football, which is far and away different than being in the business world. And he was willing to teach me 
here's how you here's how you sell here's how you you serve clients here's how you get prepared here's how you do and he literally he was very systematic about everything that he did and he he was willing for that year and a half between retiring and going to business school to simply teach me how his business worked right in fact he wrote my recommendation to go to business school and it it was this interesting experience where he w- he's 15 years older than me okay uh, yeah he's no 10 years older than me he's 10 years older than me but he he used it as an opportunity to instill in me certain principles about business right and at this time right real estate in 2009 and 2010 yeah. you couldn't be in a worse business right right because it was a financial crisis you had subprime you know you name it what's going on i mean it was a it was a awful time in you know in american econ- economic history yeah and you know how do you come to work every day how do you reach out and pick out the phone knowing that the person on the other end is very likely to tell you no yeah to give you, you to giving you, you their money to invest with them and buying real estate right. for you guys yeah that's right that's right you know and and we raised a small fund we raised you know, $8 million that we put to work. And I don't think, I mean, the fund did okay, but that's actually kind of secondary to, to the learning that I got during that environment. Right. So one of the things before you go on, I, I, there is this 30 for 30, um, on ESPN, they have a series about sports stories, but stuff outside sports, there's a a, one series or one show I remember called broke where they talk about something like 65 plus percent of, NFL and NBA players and names we all would know and then being broke within two to three years after the NFL career. And you made some good money in NFL. And and then we, you know, we talked before too about Clint Portis, who who basically got robbed of multi, multi millions of dollars uh, to the point that he wanted to kill the person who, who, who stole the money from him. Um, how did you avoid that and, and, and turn towards finance? Um, what, what helped you get steered towards this investment company um, with, with the gentleman who mentored you versus ending up broke and, and out there, you know, with that similar type of story. So, you know, I mean, that's going to go a long way back, but you know, when I, I'm, I'm naturally distrustful of people when it comes to my money. Yeah. Because when I think about my money, I think about putting, whether it was being an athlete or in the military, I, 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 I draw a direct connection between money and freedom. Yeah. And if you owe people money, if people can, can beat you out of your money, you're not really free. It doesn't matter how much you're making. Hmm. If you don't understand how your money works, then you're not really free. Somebody else is determining that for you. Yeah. And so I started off when I, and it, with a very little bit of money, I had three financial advisors, hmm. right? And if you believe in distribution, one was good, one was bad, one was a crook. Okay. <laughs> I, kid, I kid you not. Wow. I, I, I kid you not. And so the one that was bad and the one that was a crook, whatever was little bit was left after two years of seeing who they were, because people will show you who they are yeah. over time. Yeah. You got to be willing, you got to be willing to believe them. Right. Right. When they show you who you are, believe them. Yeah. And I transferred my money over to the one who was good. And the one who, and he still helps me with my money today, even though I'm in finance, I have somebody still help me think about my money. Hmm. And what he was very big about was, and he, he was an academy grad who served 20 years and then, then got into financial services. But 
he was very big about, listen, the first thing you have to do is save your money. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you invest or whatever. You have to be able to, you have to learn how to discipline yourself to save. Especially if you're going to be in the league, you're going to make all your money in 16 games. So take whatever somebody makes in their check and divide it by 17 because that's how, that's how they're going to get paid. You get paid $1.7 million, you're going to get $100,000 every check. Yeah. Right? Because there's 17 weeks in the season, including the bye week. Right. And so when you're in that scenario, it's important to save first. And so he always encouraged me, always have at least one year of cash, period. Right. Don't do anything until you have that one year of cash. Okay. Right? Then when I when I signed my, my contract with Seattle, he says to me, we're going to take your entire signing bonus and we're going to set it over here. And that money there is for your guys' future. Yeah. Period. We're not, and we're not even gonna we're not even gonna invest in anything risky. He was like, with the amount of money you make, and here's where I think athletes get themselves in trouble. We're natural risk takers. We're natural people who believe in our own ability because you can't be an NFL player if you don't believe that you're special. Right. Right. But you don't really need to be special in investing. What you need to be is not dumb. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like you. That, and I'm not trying to say that to be pejorative. Just. You want to avoid the big mistakes. Yeah. Right? Keep and it real. Because you make so much more than the than the average person, the definition of success is not losing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, my last year in the league, so think about the financial crisis, right? My last year in the league, I took I saved 90% of what I made and put it in cash. Wow. Didn't invest it in the market. And I'm a big believer in investing in the markets, right? right? But I knew I was getting towards the end of my career and I needed to have enough money to last through whatever the transition period was going to be. I figured it would take me two to three years to get onto the other side of, of being an athlete, whatever it was I was going to do, right? Whether it was going into banking or going into real estate, because I didn't know that on the front end. But I knew I had to have at least three years worth of cash. Hmm. And thankfully, I made that decision instead of investing it in the markets because right after I retired, you know, the world melted down. Yeah. Um, you know, we hit the Great Recession, oh, you yeah. know, Lehman failure, you know, Bank of America almost goes under, you know, you name it. Um, but it's about learning how to discipline yourself, learning how to. You know, the exact opposite skills in finance in terms of, you know, aggressiveness and, you know, taking risks is this, it's the exact opposite of what, what football is. Yeah. In football, you get rewarded for, for being aggressive in, in, with your money, you actually are better off not being aggressive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't want to take, you don't want to take big risks, especially when you have, I mean, if you're Clinton Porter's, right, you've already made $40 million. Is the next $5 million that valuable to you? Yeah. Or is is it worth it to make another $5 million but risk twenty? That's bad. That's just bad math. Yeah. You know, and there were so many guys that I know that made five, six times what I made that now they're broke. Mm. I guess that's one. 
And then two, and my, my ex, my ex and I, we would have this conversation. She'd get upset with me because I used to tell her, you can't hang out with so-and-so's wife. Mm. And she was, and she was like, well, why can't I? They're friends. You're playing more than he is. I said, cause he literally makes 10 times what I make. Yeah. So she can go do things that you can't, and it's going to hurt your feelings. Yeah. So don't <laughs> hang out. Wow. <laughs> wow. And the crazy thing is like the it's it's amazing how much of the stuff you're saying is just so basic in terms of we're not talking rocket science here. Make some money, save some money, keep a year's worth of living expenses in cash in the bank. You know, don't try to participate. Don't go for me. The equivalent for some of us is we go out with our friends who make a lot more money to the restaurant and have a hundred dollar tab. But we can only afford, you know, a happy meal budget, you know. Um, but you're saying the same thing, even at the NFL level. And the and the result is um, in an article at NPR, they said that the median white family has 13 times as much wealth as a median black family and 10 times as much as the medium Latin median Latino family. Um, so there are ways in which we're not as wealthy. There are multiple reasons for that. Uh, but, but setting aside the historical reasons for a second, the way for us to come up from what I hear you saying is try to live your life in these very simple, basic discipline ways. So, Let's let's set aside the the structural issues that are behind those statistics, right? And why and why you see Asian families are above the me, the 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 median, right? Let's just set aside the structural issues, right? Yep. There's 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 clearly a gap, and so how do you close how do you close that gap? Right. Knowing the only thing you have control over is yourself, right? I can complain as much as I want. Let's presume that I didn't live the lifestyle that I lived. Now, I could complain as much as I want about somebody else having more than me or there being structural barriers to my to my my uh, improvement. But that complaining doesn't change that scenario. Right. The only thing that changes that scenario that I have control over is the decisions that I make. Right. So what does that mean you do? Well, first principles of finance is you if it takes money to make money. Well, the only way that you can have that money to make more money is to save what you have. Right. Right. I mean, the Bible teaches us the first 10 percent of God. But then we've also got to save. Right. Right. We've got to save and invest. You can't eat your seed corn. Right. I mean, these are these are basic principles that don't change because of the Internet or iPhones or big houses, small houses. It's save what you have first. Once you've done that, invest in something where you have an advantage. Right. For me, it was, it was investing in my athletic ability, mm. right? Whether that's yeah. eating, whether that's eating right, going to the gym, spending time um, preparing, I was investing in my comparative advantage. Right. I had a natural affinity towards finance and numbers. So when I went to business school, I invested in doing those things. Right. I spent very little time in the stuff that I'm not good at because that's just wasted money as far as I'm concerned. Right. That theme came back again, that doing, the, doing what you're good at, being good at that. That's right. That's now right. you got so into the business world and got into the world of finance. Now you, you left the real estate piece. You went to business school. Was it hard for you to get into business school? What does it take for someone to go? And, and, and you didn't go to just any business school. You went to a top top business school 
um, at the University of Chicago. So it's a very highly ranked business school. So yeah. what? how were you able to, to achieve that um, being from the academy is good, but some people might not look at an NFL player and say, yeah, this is the, the guy we want in our business school. What does it take to get in there? So, so I only applied to business school, Harvard and University of Chicago. Okay. Period. Right. And when I went, so I came out to visit the, um, to visit a friend of mine who lived in Chicago and I sat down with, uh, a private, a guy who was in private equity. He's actually an Academy grad himself. He's a fighter pilot, but he graduated from the Academy in the early nineties. And one of his business partners was, um, on the faculty at the university of Chicago. Okay. And. I, I, this was when I still hadn't decided I was going to retire or not. Right, it was a year before I retired, I think. And the, this other guy who was he, in fact, he was he was originally an investor with Mitt Romney back in the eighties. Wow. Back in Staples, Sunrise, um, you know, these huge companies. Yeah. He, he helped. He helped found right um, a long time ago. He was the he was the private equity money behind those behind those companies. Wow. <laughs> Um, that's big money, big money. And he says to me, he says, Bryce, I understand that you're playing football. He's like, what are the chances that you're going to be Tom Brady and make five, that your next contract is going to be bigger than your current contract. Right. And I was like, and I was like, almost none. And he says, if you want to sit in my seat, Hmm. you need to go in, you need to go to business school at a place, either Harvard or University of Chicago. Hmm. He says it just that simple. And he says, with your background, if you can get a 650 on your GMAT, I'll help you get into business school. And GMAT is like the SAT for business school. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so what did I do? Identified the gap from where I am now to where I want to be. It requires me to go to business school at a top business school. Right. So I didn't even so I didn't even bother applying to, to any schools that weren't. I only applied to those two schools. Wow. And he said, I needed to get a 650. And so I ended up getting, I think I got a 640 or something like that on the GMAT. Okay. But then the second piece was he, he had me go and introduce myself to, to the administrators and the faculty, go sit on, go sit in on some classes Hmm. so that I understood what it was going to be. And it's, it's, it's not much different and I'm not a farmer, but it's not much different than you got to prepare your ground. Yeah. Right. Make sure, like the fact that my 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 application came in and they knew who I was already, right? Instead of just an application, that that's an advantage for me. Okay, right? Because they're not just reading one that's just the top of a resume. They're reading, oh, Bryce's Bryce's uh, Bryce's resume is coming. Okay, we have it in there. Right. That's kind of one. Right. The second piece is business schools. They have three. Um, they have three windows that you can apply. There's a first, there's a, there's first round, there's second round and there's last round. Okay. The easiest, um, the easiest way to get into business school is to apply in the first round. Right. It's got the most, it's got the most spots. Hmm. And what happens is it also for the relative to the number of spots, they also have the lowest amount of applications. Right. Because people, people don't submit their application typically in the first round because they're procrastinating. They want to go get this. They want to go get that. And the majority of applications come in in the second round. But the some, some spots are already gone by that point. Yep. So I competed in an environment 
where it was structurally in my favor. There were more spots and less applications. Nice. Right. And I think it's that it's, it's understanding the game or understanding the landscape that gets you opportunities that are in your, in your favor. And I, for the record, that's true across the board. I, I did early application to the air force Academy. I think I was admitted by November, almost opening and when the process starts and the applications come in all the way until the end of March, early April. So same thing. I, and same, same, I'm with you. I, when I was applying to business school at USC, I went and sat in my uniform as, as an officer in the office of the admissions advisor and told her my story and, and said, I wanted to get in. And, and she ended up, not only did she accept me into the, uh, uh, did they accept me to USC in the business school, um, which I would say is one of the top business schools as well. You know what I'm saying? We, we can compete with y'all if we need to. <laughs> uh, but I ended up after I graduated selling her three different homes, um, in, in my professional career as a real estate broker. So, so making those connections is a big deal that people sometimes avoid. It's, they say it's not what you know, but who you know, but sometimes it really is. You got to get to know some people and build your network. And, and, and people, and, 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 and it's not just that you know them and that you can pick up the phone and, and have a conversation. It's that they know you, they know your character, they know your capabilities. Right beyond just a resume or what you look like on paper, right? Like, I mean, my resume looks good and all that other, great, you know, but it's people who have had interactions with me. It's, especially as I, as I've kind of progressed in my career now, it's people who did deals with me when I was a young banker or people who I worked on projects with when I was a young banker, people who I went to business school with and saw, they saw my performance level. It's, it's it's building credibility, but I think it's also being clear that you, know, you want to play games where you have an advantage. Yeah. You, you don't want to like I'm I'm six three at the time. I played at two hundred and eighty. I was not going to be running up and down a basketball court. Right. Period. If you're five eight five nine, I don't want to discourage anybody's dreams, but it's going to be very difficult for you to play high level basketball when you're short. Right. Right. I couldn't see that little white ball when you're playing baseball. I love baseball, but some guys can see that ball and see how the ball moves. So focus on the things that you're good at and not so much the things that you're not so good at. That theme coming up again, man. And, and, And you took that into business school, succeeded and did very well there. And then, so here's the part where life changes. Now you're going from one environment where it's 60, 70%. Uh, minorities to a world in business school and finance. I know it has been for me in business school. I've heard the same thing in finance where you're definitely the minority. Um, And that's what the show was about, seeing how we succeeded in those environments. How did you make that move into working for uh, into the investment banking world at at B of A and Merrill Lynch and, and succeeding in business school? What was that transition like there? So I've never been in a room where there was an African American that was senior to me. You mean since I've been in since I've been in finance. Wow. Period. If I've never, when I've been with a client, has there been anybody another brown face that was more senior than I am? Wow. Even when I was a ju- even when I was a junior guy, it is an environment that is predominantly white and male. Hmm. Period. And it's been about you've been in the in that time we're talking from ten years now. You're talking about yeah. I've been I've been in finance I've been in finance ten years now, right? 
And why do I say that? That's that I could structurally complain about that. And it's great to get and sit around and while you're sitting at the dinner table, complain about that. But that's just the environment. Yeah. So then the question becomes, how do I perform in that environment? I do have an advantage because people like to talk about sports. But if all we talk about is sports, right. then, then I'm not getting what I need out of, out of an interaction. They're getting what they wanted to get out of the interaction, but I'm not getting what I need. And so I had to make sure that I was absolutely tip top in, in my credentials. <clears throat> so whether it was at, at, when it was at, whether it was at business school or my first couple years at the bank, there was nobody that was going to know more or be better prepared than I was. Okay. Period. And early on in my career, I worked for a guy who's a very successful investment banker. <clears throat> early on in my career, he gave me opportunities to be successful. So I still remember this like it was yesterday. We go into a meeting with a client. I'm a first year associate. I think I've been at the firm six months. And he takes me to the meeting with him. And the client asks, asks a question. And the managing director didn't know the answer. My mm. vice president, the vice president didn't know the answer. And I just blurted out the answer. And he shoots a look at me and he says, you know that? Right. And I said, yeah, I read it. Here it is right here. And from that moment on, he gave me more and more opportunities. Right. So a year, a year later, we're with that. It's the very same client. And I'm still a very junior guy, but we're in this boardroom. We're working on this large transaction and we have to put put up the financial model and go through all the numbers of the company that we were thinking about helping them buy. And the chairman of the board's in there. Goldman Sachs has their representatives in there. We have ours in there. And I'm the guy who everybody's peppering with questions. Wow. And the reason why they were asking me was I was the only junior banker who did all the reading. Hmm. Right? Because your job as the junior banker is to have the answers in the details. Yeah. Why does why is it this way? So this company lost they lost money in this geography, or they made money in that geography, or this business line is doing this. And that. well, the managing directors, the, the very senior people, they're not all the way down in those weeds. Right. And so it was myself and like three other junior people. And of those four. I was the only one who knew the answers, but that was because I was the only one who did all the reading. Hmm. Wow. So preparation was was key. It wasn't, it wasn't because I was smart. I mean, these guys went to Harvard, went to Princeton, you name the schools, right? They'd been bankers for, for they'd done banking before they went to business school, but literally they just didn't do the reading. It's that same old thing. Like you said, there were guys who are more athletic than you, but you ran harder, more consistently than some of these guys who may have had the quote unquote natural ability. That's the, the, what I found the long, the more that I'm in this job and I look back at what, what did football really teach me how to do? Right. It was one, how to take notes two, be comfortable with failure, but three really, I mean, it's at its basic level was how to be prepared to play. Yeah. Right. What and do you have to do? What do you have to do to be prepared? Let's let's take one second before we get too deep into it. Can you just give the 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 thumbnail, 
basic version of what is investment banking. So you graduated from business school and you go into investment banking. What what is? Can you explain what that is briefly? So the simplest way to think about it is I advise companies on the biggest decisions they're going to make, which is to either buy another company, sell themselves, or to raise a significant amount of money in the public markets. And so when we're saying they're going to make big decisions, what are some of the dollar value of some of these decisions we're talking about here? So the smallest so the smallest deal we'll typically work on is 4 to 500 million dollars. That's typically the smallest size deal that wow. we'll work on. And we'll work on deals all the way up to five or $10 billion. Yeah. Right. And you're there Um, saying you're about to make this 5 billion or $10 billion decision. I'm going to advise you how to step your way through it. That's right. That's what you, so you hire, you hire our team. We have, we have, we have a team of people and I, and I'm just one part of it. Um, but we, you hire our team to help you think through those decisions because there's mountains upon mountains of information that's available and being able to distill that down to what are the key, the key variables and the key decision points, and then work through that over time, right? It's very iterative process. Like you, you get to, you, you do, you make your final decision the day before you sign the contract, Yeah, but you've done work for two to three years ahead of time. Mm. So some of these deals you work on, you may have been preparing for them for a couple of years. That's correct. Wow, that's correct. Well, so like can we're you, working on we're ahead. working on a tra- we're working on a, on something right now that if it if it, if we get it done, it'll close at the end of the year. That we've been talking about with our client for at least four years. Wow, wow. So that's having to have a long-term focus. Why don't you bullet a couple of the deals that you've done so so people can understand the type of world that you're operating in? So, well, I guess it's probably easier to kind of go from most recent to further further interest. So, and just two or three April, are good to get an idea yeah, of the scope. In, in April, we sold Metaldyne Performance Group to American Axle for $3.3 billion. It, it closed in April. Wow. Last, you know, in 2016 or 2015, we sold, um, we helped Borg Warner buy Remy for 1.1 billion. We helped LKQ buy an, its largest Italian competitor for 1.2 billion, and that was in 2015. Um, 2014, I took Metal Nine. We took Metal Nine public, um, which was the first automotive IPO in shoot five or six years. Wow. Um, we led that. Um, so that's just that's just four deals right there. And um, and your position on the team is so I'm the I'm the sector captain for our, the way that our bank is organized is there's management directors that have relationships with clients and then there's vice presidents who are responsible for uh, responsible for industry groups. So I'm responsible for basically the, the automotive value chain. In North America, okay. Which and what that basically means is I'm the, I'm the repository of knowledge. So people kind of from all around the globe, and I, I connect in North America. I got a partner in Europe, and I got a partner in Asia. Yeah. And the three of us, all of the managing directors and relationship managers, about what assets might be coming to market, what opportunities are available, what themes are investors um, investing in, what are what are companies 
um, seeing as far as risks and opportunities. That's 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 my role in the firm. And then when we get into an actual deal, I'm the I'm the captain. So yeah. I'm the one who organizes. I'm the one who has to organize the data, get get the team prepared, organize diligence, coordinate with the the either if they're selling the company or buying a company, I have to coordinate with the other side, manage the lawyers, manage the accountants. Right, it's very much a um, a logistical function. Okay. And so you were talking before about there are a few things that you took as skills from football and brought them to finance. If someone wants to be, because a lot of people think the only route to, to, to making good money are in our community are being a doctor, being a lawyer, that type of thing. And then now a big thing is this whole finance world. Um, what's the if someone wants to do that, what kind of person wants to get into that world, do you think? So if you want to be in finance and do what I do, right, there's lots of different parts of finance, right? Whether it's, you know, wealth management or investment banking, sales and trading, um, accounting, you have to enjoy numbers. Like you just have to enjoy math. Yeah. If you, if you don't enjoy math, it's a, it's almost, you cannot do this job well. Right. Right. Because you spend a lot of time in it. I think that's one. I think two people who enjoy puzzles hmm. and being comfortable with not having perfect information, right? Where I can get, you know, you've heard of the Marine Corps 70% solution. Yeah. Right. I mean, can I get, am I comfortable knowing that I don't have full, full and complete information now, but I can get to full and complete information over time. Right. But I, but I'm not paralyzed by, by not having the the answer up front. Right. I think that's two. I think three, the ability to to communicate and have empathy hmm. for people. So oftentimes when we talk about communication, we we wanna think about it just in your ability to speak. Yeah. But you also have the ability to listen and empathize with that other person's situation. So we work with very senior executives who are experts in their business, but they're not experts in Wall Street and in finance. Yeah. And if you're the guy who has to, guy or gal who has to make the decision, and these are the biggest decisions that you're going to make, and there's people's jobs are on the line if you get it wrong, for that senior executive, what he looks to or she looks to from their advisor is somebody who can understand their position and help them think it through. Right. And that's less about, you know, can you do the math? That's more about, are you hearing what I'm telling you? Yeah. You're a consultant or counselor. Yeah, that's right. Like, are, are you hearing what I'm asking you? Are you listening to me? Are you thinking about it from my perspective? Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not much different than just being, empathetic in life, but you're doing it also in business. Well, you know, it's funny because if you look at the TV or movies, you would think high finance guys, these big arrogant people that are kind of telling their clients what to do. But if in the top talents required is the ability to be empathetic, that that's kind of, that's a surprising one to me. Yeah. And I mean, there are big egos in finance and there are big, there are huge personalities, but at least the way that I've been trained, Right. The the ones who I've seen be successful for a very long period of time are the people who can sit there and listen to their client 
and understand what their client is asking them. Awesome. Wow. That's that's really good to know, man. And and, and I want to roll back to a piece you said earlier where you've always been the most senior person of color in the room. Um, have you had to deal with any kind of bias um, it, because of that environment that 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 you've seen in the banking world or even back in business school? So so the bias that I see is a little bit different, right, because oftentimes people are surprised that an athlete is a banker. Right. So they have this presumption that this large African-American male doesn't understand what's going on. I used to have to, one of the reasons why I went to business school is I used to have to spend the first 30 minutes of every conversation proving that I was smart enough to have the conversation for the next 30 minutes. And that's a, that's a thing. If I can pause for a second there, that's a thing that people don't see as a, as a barrier. And, and obviously you busted right through it, like in your, in your wedge breaker days. But, um, but that's a barrier that's a, it seems like it would be a significant one because some people don't even get the chance to get in the room like you do. But when you're in the room, you have to deal with that. Does this guy even know what he's talking about? That's right. But when you go to a school like the university of Chicago, right? Like a lot of that falls away. Like once you say, when they say, where, where did you go to business school? University of Chicago. That kind of checks the box on any, uh, any academic questions. Right. Oh, Air, Air Force Academy. Um, and University of Chicago grad, now he's at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Like that kind of checks a lot of those boxes. But the second thing that I have, that's that I have a structural advantage over most of my my African American peers hmm. in that I have a man I have a white managing director that puts me in in positions to be successful. Okay. We'll be in a room and people will ask him questions. Right. And he, 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 he knows the answer, but oftentimes what he'll do is he'll say, you know, you really should ask Bryce that he's closer to the answer or he's closer to the numbers or he's closer to the diligence. And he started doing that when I was a very junior person, Hmm. right? We'd go and we'd do meetings with, with CEOs and he'd be like, don't ask me, ask Bryce. Hmm. And it started to build this credibility with clients where they still see me, you can't avoid the fact that I'm, you know, the 6'4", 280 pound African-American male, right. but they saw me as the guy who, who had the numbers down. He had the diligence issues down. He, he knew the situation. Um, and the more you build that credibility, the more people start to see you as a real banker. Right. Right. And so that's an advantage that I have in that the guy that I work for since, you know, since I was a very junior guy, put me in, put me in situations and gave me lent. He basically lent me his credibility. How would you. So you said there are very few of us in the room. How would you turn that around? Like what's your to those people who want to hear it, that there need to be some changes. And this is across industries. In addition to putting folks in a position to succeed. How would you turn this this numbers problem around? So where I've seen because there's there's first of all there's a there's a structural numbers problem in finance where the big banks predominantly recruit from schools that are disproportionately Caucasian and male. Yeah. So it's not just that 
you're like if you go to Harvard and you look into look into the people who are going into business school and the people who are going into investment banking, it's disproportionate, right? So even relative to their student population, it's disproportionately white and male. Yeah. So if you're if you're recruiting in that pool, by definition, you're recruiting in a pool that's disproportionately white and male. So you shouldn't be surprised that you end up with incoming banking classes that are disproportionately white and male. Yeah. You, you, you made that choice at the beginning. I had this conversation with the COO of our bank. I said, we're, we're intentionally choosing. And he's like, no, we're not. And I'm like, no, no, you're recruiting in places that are disproportionately white and male. Yeah. You are choosing to have an incoming class that's disproportionately white and male until you make the choice to recruit from different places. Then what always comes back is, well, we don't want to lower our standards. Mm. And I was saying to myself, well, just by choosing, just recruiting from a diverse population doesn't mean you're lowering your standards. In fact, if anything, it's improving your standards because you're getting, you're giving the the net of of highly qualified candidates. You're 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 spreading that out. Yeah, you're getting more people into more people into the funnel, which gives you a better opportunity to pick the right person. Right. I mean. You wouldn't believe, like, we talk about, you know, we make jokes about affirmative action. And the greatest affirmative action over time has been the propagation of mediocre white males. Hmm. Right? <laughs> like, it's just... Explore that. What do you, t- t- tell me what you're saying. Perfect example. If you see an African-American fail, yeah, people will question whether or not it was the diversity problem or... You know, we recruited this African-American male or whatnot. If you see a Caucasian male fail, the, what they say is, oh, well, you know what? He just couldn't cut it. Yeah. You know, it's for him. He doesn't have to defend an entire class of people hmm. in any environment. He's not a representative. Like for some reason, I, and, I, and I hate being in the conversation where I'm, I have to be the, the spokesperson for, for black America. Right. 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 But I'm the only African-American in our in, in our in our firm in Chicago, I'm the only one. Out of how many people? In the investment bank, there are I think 35 bankers. Wow. You know, between between managing directors, vice president, you know, I'm the only vice president, but associates and, and analysts, I'm the only one. Wow. Period. Right. And we we only have three females, I think. Hmm. And they're all analysts. Hmm. So very so lowest is, level. So, yeah. So so what does that say when they when people don't see um, people that look like them and have their same background in very senior levels? What the, what the firm is basically saying is that people like you don't have a chance to be successful because we haven't because we haven't seen that. How have you overcome that? that? Like between the people trying to prove yourself as a being able to having the right to be in the room, plus not seeing any other examples. How have you overcome that? So I think it's, I think there's a few things, right? And I, and one is that I haven't overcome it yet. Right. I mean, I'll get promoted to director here in six months, Yeah. but you know, as it is right now, I'm still a vice president, but I think it's, I over prepare. Yeah. I, I, I try to read everything. I try to make sure that I have everything Everything that's in my control, I try to make sure that I know those numbers or I know the situation cold, right? So it's a it's a preparation thing. I think 
two, I partnered well with other parts of our bank, hmm. whether it's other product partners, other geographic partners. So where I'm a known commodity. Yeah. Right. So instead of sitting in, just sitting in my office in my shell, I've made sure to outreach across different functional areas. And that gives me kind of, that gives me credibility with lots of different situations. Right. And then if I, if I can go back to it, right. The guy that I work for, he literally fired the people that were between him and me that he basically viewed as in my way. Hmm. He fired them hmm. and basically said, Bryce, you can run my book of business. And I was only, I was a second year associate. Wow. And now here it is. I'm still his vice president and wherever, wherever he goes, most of the time, that's where, I am. where he goes. You go. That's where I go. That's really good, man. I think, and it's funny because that uh, part of what you said sounds like we got to work twice as hard to get half as much as people of color, but you were doing that in football in college and football in the pros as a real estate investor in business school all the way through. So as opposed to having to look at that and say, woe is me, you know, or be frustrated about it, like you said, just make that a personal habit and it'll serve you across multiple areas. So I think you're, I think you're right there. I think the second thing is being honest with ourselves to understand there's a gap between what I say I want to do and where I am right now. Okay. And there's only, there's only two choices. It's either you close the gap or you fail. Hmm. And I think so often we have conversations about why, why is this an issue? Why is that an issue? And that's true. And we should have that structural conversation, but at an individual level, the only way to close that gap is to close that gap. Right. Whether you're so there's there's an achievement gap between African Americans and the majority population in math and science, but that actually shows up in it, it shows up in two places. It's either they were academically unprepared to start school yeah. when they're a kindergartner, right? So whether it's you can read your own name or know your colors or spell your letters, whatever it is, right? So there's there's a segment of the population that's unprepared for, for the first day of kindergarten. Yeah. But there's also a segment of the population that's ready for the first day of school. But for some reason, there's a divergence in outcomes as they get into middle school and beyond. Right. And it's being able to be honest with ourselves and identify those gaps. Yeah. So if a kid's not ready for, for kindergarten, we need to get them ready for kindergarten, right. period. If a kid's ready for the first grade, but they start to see themselves tailing off in the third or fourth grade, we need to identify it, come up with a solution, and then focus on that. Until, you know, that's just kind of first principles of business. Right. It's my competitor's doing this, I'm doing this, they're winning more sales, how do I close that gap? That's good, man. That's good. And and I wonder, have you had mentors? Obviously, your your managing partner or is a managing partner, managing director, managing director, but it's yeah. the same thing. So the managing director has been a mentor, obviously. Have you had throughout your NFL um, and and business career? What are some who are some other mentors who have helped you succeed? So, yeah. So in the NFL, a guy named Tyoka Jackson, who. You know, he played a long time. He played like 12 or 13 years in the league. Um, he was an undrafted free agent, defensive lineman. And this brother 
he he literally taught me how to take his job. Hmm. He was he was you know the first defensive lineman off the bench when we were in St. Louis, and he was I think Ty is six years older than me. Yeah, and he was willing to teach me how to be successful, how to be a pro, how to you know everything from he, he taught me how to tie my tie correctly, hmm. right? How to how to do interviews with the media, how to think about investment opportunities that were coming to me. Um, how to be prepared. If I'm playing against this player, here's the things that this guy does well. Here's the things that this guy doesn't do well. He had played for the league. He played in the league at that time, like eight or nine years. Yeah. And so he had this deep reservoir of knowledge and experience that he was willing to download into me. Yeah. So I could, I could get those experiences through him versus having to get them on the field in in an environment where losing means that you could be cut two days later. Right. Right. I think that's one. Um, when I was at the academy, you know, the, the my coach at the academy was very much like, here's how you prepare yourself. Here's how you're successful. Right. Um, and I found those in every aspect of my life. Like my um, the guy, at, you know, from from real estate, my business partner there. Right. He was willing to teach me, lend me his reservoir of knowledge. Right. I mean, if we're you just think about, um, you know, what we are today is is basically the cumulative knowledge of of human history. Yeah. So what have we learned in this experiment in the United States as African-American males? That reservoir of knowledge isn't great. Right. That reservoir of history isn't great. And there's and we're, we're patterns of behavior that people teach us. Right. Well, if we're learning from the right sets of people almost by definition, like if you think about you as a parent, you're going to instill your knowledge in your children. Right. Well, children of successful people tend to be successful. Well, children of unsuccessful people tend to be unsuccessful. Hmm. So it's, it's the ability to identify those gaps and intervene and help people redirect into a better outcome. And it sounds like you had people all along the way, first at the academy to the NFL to your real estate business, and now with your managing director at at Merrill Lynch to be able to guide you and fill those gaps. Right. And it's my responsibility to help people behind me fill those gaps. Okay. So Daryl Tapp, who plays in New Orleans right now, Mm -hmm. he came up, he took my job in Seattle. And by all rights, he deserved to take the job. He was play, he played better than I did. Yeah. But that didn't stop me from being that didn't stop me from being helpful to him. Right. Right. When there's guys who are in in you know in my firm now, where they they want to learn the things that I know, right? And I'm going to invest in those that I believe have the willingness and capacity to to be excellent. And even if that means that they replace me at some point. Right? Yeah. That's and that's completely that's completely okay. Right? If they replace me, that's and I and that's I'm comfortable with that as an outcome. Yeah, because you're moving up. You ain't worried about them taking your job. You're moving up anyway. That's right. That's right. I plan to keep moving up. If they take my role, that just as far as I'm concerned, that actually is, is better for me. That means I do less of that stuff. Right. That's a good attitude, man. It's it's the opposite of that crabs in the barrel syndrome where someone else's success doesn't have to mean your absolute loss. You could both win. That's right. That's right. 
Can you um, tell me if you had three books to give as a gift, what, what would those books be if you could think of that? Three books that I would give as a gift. So I think one would be the autobiography of Colin Powell. Okay. I like that one. Right. Amazing book. I mean, his story, cause he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't a rocket scientist. Right. Literally. I think, I think he struggled to get through undergrad. Right. But he's, it was a testament of building relationships, being clear of having clarity of purpose, um, you know, commitment, integrity. So I think, I think the autobiography of, of Colin Powell, I think, I think that's one. Um, I like to read, I like to read, um, business books, right? Um, I like to read biographies. I like to read time series of, um, of, uh, political intrigue. So I read, I read a series called, uh, by Vince Flynn. Yeah. And he, he writes about this character, Mitch Rapp, right? I love Mitch Rapp, man. I listened to the audio book. Right. <laughs> right. So literally pick any of the books, but the reason why I would suggest you read it is the story is much less about, Hey, he's this, you know, one man, um, you know, fighting off terrorists. Right. It's, 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 it's really complex, um, interactions between people. Right. And that's a kind of a microcosm for the way that we live our lives. Right. It's, 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 um, the ability to, to interact with multiple types of people. I would say, so I would suggest reading any type of book that's like that. Yeah. Where yeah. there's, where it's not a linear story. Right. Right. So I think, so, so one, it's the autobiography of Colin Powell. Two, it's, um, any Mitch rap book. It's, it's any Mitch rap book or it can be old Tom Clancy books or, but it's the, the point of the book is it's the point of the, the point of the recommendation is to read stuff that's, that's got multiple people interacting. You're the first person right. I ever met who even talks about Mitch Rapp, man. And I love his his mentality, his psychology, his mental toughness. We're like some book nerds over here, man. I'm a complete I'm a complete I'm a complete nerd. And then the last book I'm actually finishing right now is called um, The Disney Way. Okay. But it, it talks about and, and it's interesting because it's a business book, but it talks about exceeding people's expectations. Right. Right. And how Walt Disney had this dream, um, dream, de- dream, believe, do, I think is the way he, he framed it. Okay. But, you know, it was very it's very much about about serving your customer, serving the other person. Right. So much of what we think about in, in our society today is about how can I consume versus how can I serve? Right. And then if I can add a fourth book sure. not to get on, not to get too too um too religious on it but i mean there there's so many lessons that people can learn just from reading their bible yeah <laughs> right no. that just you literally you can pick it up at any place just pick it up and you can pick in the middle you can pick in the front you can pick in the back period <laughs> right and you can develop lessons yeah you're my second guest to recommend that so i'm with it all the way Last question, man. What is some stuff you do for fun? I, you're not just uh, uh, besides crashing, busting through uh, wedges. What are some things you do for fun? Uh, we just want to know yeah. people people to know you're a regular person too. So the, the the most fun that I have, and the most fun that I have, is spending time with 
my children, my family. I love to, I love to cook. Yeah. I love, but I like to cook for people. Mm. Right. So, you know, if I'm just cooking for myself, that's great. But I, I really enjoy cooking for large amounts of people and just sitting around and having fellowship fellowship where you're either you're, you're BSing or telling lies or you're, <laughs> you're playing cards right. or, you know what I mean? Just, um, so much of what, what we do nowadays is either on our computer, on our tablets, right. but you know, the ability to sit down and, and break bread with, with people that you care about, you know, that's something that I find a lot of personal satisfaction in. What's your best dish? What's your, if you're going to cook something you want to really impress, what's your best dish? <laughs> so I'm, 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 I, I got a cold set of ribs Okay. that I got a cold set of ribs that, you know, I had a buddy of mine, I made, I'm, he came over, he and his family came over and I sent them with a slab of ribs. He's got three boys. He called me at midnight <laughs> that night and asked me if I had another slab Oh, because his boys had eaten it all up already. <laughs> okay. Well, next True time story. I see you, man, we can have some of your ribs. Yeah, I got a cool, I got a cool set of ribs. In, nice, you know. Well, Bryce, man, I could talk to you for another hour, sir. Um, but we're gonna call it here. It's been a great conversation with you. I think folks are gonna learn a lot, man. It's been a pleasure, and I've enjoyed it. Hopefully, you have too. Well, I appreciate it, man. Let me know whenever this gets posted. But I uh, thanks for reaching out. For sure, my guest today has been Bryce Fisher, and this is the Breaking the Glass podcast. Thanks, Bryce. I appreciate it.